Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Algorithms are a black box. They're present in all kinds of technologies we interact with every day, and they shape all kinds of real-world outcomes. But we don't know how. You can think of an algorithm kind of like a recipe. It's a program that takes inputs or ingredients and serves up particular outputs, like a cake based on a set of instructions. We know that we're the ones providing the ingredients in the form of what we click on, Google, or give hearts and likes to. And we see the results, like targeted ads or recommended posts. But most of us have no idea what the recipes are. And the people who design and use algorithms don't have to tell us. Whether it's in low-stakes stuff like social media or in really, really high-stakes stuff like police-run facial recognition programs, the algorithms are still mysteries to us. And when it comes to artificial intelligence, we're even more in the dark. If algorithms are like recipes, then AI is like someone who's only seen a lot of cooking shows but never actually cooked, and they're let loose in the kitchen with no recipe. And as this technology becomes more ubiquitous and more powerful, the values and aims of those people releasing that AI into the world will really matter. So how can we protect ourselves, not just from AI, but from the human beings in control of AI? I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Tamnit Gabru. She's studying the ethics of artificial intelligence at the Distributed AI Research Institute, which she founded in 2021. Gabru made the news in 2020 when she very publicly left her job at Google. They say she resigned. She says she was fired. It was a whole thing. But since then, Gabru has become a widely recognized critic of the company's developing AI. For her, the lack of accountability has already produced discriminatory outcomes, and the potential for even more worrisome abuses is growing. The people with power in the AI community have been able to evade accountability. 
in part because many of us don't know enough about this technology. In fact, Gabru says that even the term artificial intelligence has helped to create a lot of confusion about what AI really does. So I want to start by saying that the term artificial intelligence, it's already like a bad term. Various people have different understandings of what AI is. When I think of AI systems, I think of a collection of techniques to help us do certain things and build tools, right? So when I think of something like natural language processing, which is a set of techniques to analyze text in specific ways, which is beyond just kind of having code of what to do. So for example, if you have automated speech-to-text transcription systems where there would be a caption of what I'm saying automatically, that would be to me something that is based on a natural language processing tool, which is part of what I understand to be AI. Other people understand AI to be some sort of all-knowing machine or being, I don't know what how to call it. This is maybe many times called artificial general intelligence, AGI. There is a bunch of people whose goal is to work on such a thing, which to me, I don't even really understand what exactly it is. It seems like a god that they're trying to create. And I'm definitely not in that camp. So that's how I would describe AI. I would describe AI as a set of techniques to help us build tools that cannot necessarily be built with traditional programming techniques. That's how I would define it. But right now, it's also a marketing term. It's <laughs> you you got to understand it as such. You know, I got my PhD in what's called the AI lab at Stanford. And I never called myself an AI researcher. That wasn't a thing we called ourselves, like, let's say, 10 years ago. But that term started to get a lot of attention after that. And so it's also used as a marketing term to sort of capture the public's imagination like Terminator or something like that. What do you think most people get wrong about AI? And maybe I think what I'm really asking you there is what is it that frustrates you the most about the discourse (laughs) on this particular subject? Because, boy, there's a lot of discourse and it is all over the place. I don't fault the average people because I think there is an intentional hype that comes from corporations and organizations that misleads the public. So the most frustrating thing to me is that the public's perception of AI comes more from like science fiction and movies. And also people think that we have gotten to a point where there are Machines that think for themselves or things like that. That's the kind of discourse you see. Is it sentient? Is it not sentient? But we wrote an article a few weeks ago talking about the armies of exploited workers from around the world that fuel quote-unquote AI systems. So there is this illusion of creating the system that does X, Y, and Z, but actually there's lots and lots of people who are exploited and visible behind it. So to me, that is the most frustrating part because the moment you stop talking about who builds a particular system and who it's deployed on, you also abdicate responsibility. So now the conversation becomes, who knows what the machine will do? Does it like this? Does it like this other thing? Because you're kind of ascribing all of these things to a particular machine rather than people who build it and systems by which they're built. So 
when you use a term like machine learning or deep learning is another phrase that's out there, mm-hmm. what the hell is that? <sighs> okay, so machine learning, I would say, is a more general term of how to create a system that takes in a bunch of data points. Yeah. You can say, hey, I have data points for how specific foods were made and whether someone liked them or not. And then based on that data point, I'm going to create the optimal way to create a food such that someone will like it or such that someone in the past was most likely to like it or something like that. That would be a general way of machine learning. Now, deep learning is like a specific type of machine learning, right? Using what people call neural networks. You can think of it as a set of layers where each layer has a specific way of learning things, right? A specific way of organizing data. And the more layers you add, I guess, is that that's where the depth, quote unquote, depth come from. And it becomes much more complex. So people don't really understand how you've actually come up with the particular recipe. You are someone who thinks very deeply about some of the ethical implications of all these technologies. And that's really where the heat is for me. And there are all kinds of things that people worry about when it comes to these sorts of technologies. There are privacy issues. People are worried about the uses of facial recognition software. There's the lending algorithms and some of the disparities they produce. We'll probably get into this a little bit later, but there's a contingent of people who are really worried about super intelligent AI rising up and killing all of us, you know, a la Terminator, Skynet. And in every case, the things that people worry about are, as they must be, reflections of their values and their priorities. What is it that worries you the most when it comes to AI and the use of these sorts of algorithms today? I'm certainly not worried about super intelligent machines taking over and doing things on their own. I actually get very irritated by that. (laughs) (laughs) But what I'm really worried about is centralization of power and deepening inequity and oppression based on that centralization of power. So the kinds of systems that we're seeing right now, so for example, we talked about deep learning. In the Noema article we wrote a few weeks ago talking about the exploited labor behind artificial intelligence, we talk about the ubiquity of deep learning and how it came with the rise and ubiquity of crowd work. So now these deep learning systems are often require lots and lots of data and compute power. And before, we didn't have those things. But now, since you can crowd work, right, you can have millions and millions of data points that you use for training, and you can have them annotated. Let's say if you want to create an image recognition system that wants to learn whether there's a tree or something in the system, right, you need to annotate each image first saying, okay, there's a tree here, there's a house there. Now with the rise of crowd work, you can annotate millions and millions of points in a day or two using millions and millions of people that you each pay a cent for or something like that, right? You couldn't do that before. So now what that has created is a workforce that is vulnerable, that doesn't have full-time jobs, but that's kind of a second-class citizen around the world. And all the data, all the compute, All the power is concentrated within a handful of organizations that are using this global workforce around the world. So that's one. That's the creation of the AI systems that's creating exploitation. Then there's the deployment, the way it's deployed. Think about autonomous weapons and which countries are going to have whatever they want to do. 
you know, some countries are going to create these auto- and have created these autonomous weapons, and they could use them as they please remotely for warfare against other countries. And even if you think within countries, a lot of these militaristic autonomous weapons are now being deployed across borders. Like if you think of the robot dogs or whatever, drones, same thing, right? They're used to surveil, quote unquote, migrants, and they're used to surveil Black Lives Matter protesters. So this is all kind of centralization of power, either by a handful of corporations or by a handful of governments. And to me, that's really the thing that worries me the most. What I've been thinking about in preparing for this conversation is some of these, in the interest of not being abstract and trying to find like really concrete examples of how some of these technologies can become engines for inequality. And so I think about something like lending algorithms, which seemed like a good example of the kinds of hazards or biases you're identifying. Do you have any thoughts about that particular tech and, and how it's maybe an example of some of the things you've been making a lot of noises about? Yeah, so there are two ways in which AI systems can be harmful, right? Right. I want to say that they don't have to have quote-unquote bias to be harmful. I'll get back to lending, but one of the ways in my work specifically, a lot of it has been about face recognition systems. So one of our papers showed that these automated facial recognition tools that are used almost everywhere now had a much higher error rate for darker-skinned women and almost no error rates for lighter-skinned men. And so what does this mean? When you're using these systems in high-stakes scenarios, like, for example, you know, law enforcement is trying to identify a quote-unquote criminal using these facial recognition systems, darker-skinned people are going to be more likely to be wrongfully arrested misidentified. However, even if you had a face recognition system that worked perfectly and you use it to surveil people. So when you look at the people that were arrested, what were the kinds of things they were accused of? Their lives were ruined because people accused them of stealing like snacks, right? (laughs) And so even if the accuracy of the surveillance system was 100% accurate, then you're going to be overly incarcerating and punishing people, right? And so when you go to the lending example, it's a similar thing. There are two ways in which the system can be harmful. One is to say, hey, who is going to be more likely to repay this loan? And you're going to learn a system that determines who these people are going to be based on historical data which we know based on the country that we're in and what various people have dealt with, like redlining and things like that, is going to be biased against Black people. So this system can be biased saying certain groups of people are less likely to pay loans, so give them higher interest rates or don't lend to them. Now, the other way to look at it is what is your goal? If your goal is to help someone who can't repay a loan Maybe this is not even the right approach at all to have an algorithm that determines whether they should have a loan or not. Maybe this is a a political question about how we want to approach these things, right? Maybe we want to lift them out of poverty rather than further punishing them for not being able to pay back loans. So I have a much more expansive view of what the harms can be in terms of AI systems. It's not just purely a question of bias. Even if you have perfectly working systems, they can work perfectly. And that could mean that the result is oppression. 
I like the point you made about bias, right? Because it is important. You don't have to have a bunch of people sitting around deliberately trying to engineer biases into these systems in order for them to produce really ridiculous, absurd, unfair outcomes. You know, you mentioned the sentencing algorithms a while ago, and I, I interviewed an author, Hannah Fry. She was a mathematician, and she wrote a book about algorithms, and she was telling me the story about this guy named Christopher Brooks. He was a 19-year-old man in Virginia, and he was convicted of statutory rape of a 14-year-old girl. Now, they had a consensual relationship. If you think that word means anything with people at that age, that's a separate question. But she was underage, and that was illegal. So the judge, during the sentencing, used an algorithm to make a prediction about how likely this person is to go on to commit another crime when they're released from jail. And the algorithm gave him a really high score of reoffending. And the reason for that, the logic of that was because, well, he was young and he was already committing crimes. And so there was a high chance, according to the algorithm, that he would continue in this life of crime. So he ended up getting like two years in jail or something like that. And maybe that's fair. I don't know. It's beside the point. The point is that these things, they can become so illogical because it turned out in this particular case, a lot of weight was placed on the age of the offender. So if he would have been 40 years old, it would have deemed him a much lower threat of committing another crime. But in that case, he would have been like 26 years older. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't make any freaking sense. But that's an example of how these are very crude instruments. And human life is very complicated. And when you try to map them onto that complexity, boy, a lot of things can go wrong. Many of them unintended, maybe all of them unintended, but that doesn't make them any less bad. The other issue with this, which is um, very important to note with the example that you mentioned, is that there is a what we call automation bias, right? So there is a tendency for a lot of people to just trust That Oh, the algorithm said, like, it must know. Like, how many times have you been driving? I gave this example a while ago, using GPS or Google Maps or something, and it sends you to some really roundabout way. Like, oh, must know something I don't know. It must be smarter than me. That's a very common way in which we ascribe a lot more trust in automated systems. And so Anna Howard, who used to be at Georgia Tech, I think she's at Ohio State now, did an experiment where they simulated a fire and the students had a robot that was supposed to lead them outside to safety. And these students just followed the robot to the most random places. Like it would go towards the fire and they would follow it. It would go to some dead end and they would follow it. If it was just me trying to lead them to this, they would ask me like, what's going on? This doesn't seem right. But because there is this kind of automation bias, they didn't do that. They just followed it. And we're seeing the same kind of issues. Everybody's talking about chat GPT now, this chat bot that was released by OpenAI. And again, just because this is a system that learned how to construct words or sequences of words that are most probable because it had lots and lots of data for it was trained using lots and lots of data on the internet. So it was trained to figure out what are the most probable sequences of words and output that based on the input that you give it. This is not really knowledge. It's just stringing together most probable sequences of words. However, because the most probable sequences of words are grammatically correct and they sound like what people produce because this is text that we produce as humans, 
a lot of people get fooled, right? There was a case of somebody thinking a similar chatbot at Google was quote unquote sentient, Blake Lemoyne. And now there's all these people talking about how chat GPT is so accurate. You can ask it a question and it can give you very wrong answers, but sounding super plausible, right? If you ask it to say this in a scientific way, it'll create scientific sounding tests, which is completely wrong. So again, this is manipulating the over-trust that we have as humans. So we're having all of these systems out there right now that kind of manipulate our trust. And basically, most people are not, most companies are really not paying attention to this and the harm it could cause. Coming up after the break, how should we be thinking about AI and our safety? Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. So you're talking about chat GPT and, and so like open AI, at least to my understanding, was intended to promote AI safety. <laughs> But we seem to be learning that it's actually maybe not quite as manageable as we thought. Should the corporations making these models, creating these systems even be involved in AI safety? Or is that effectively like asking missile companies to manage nuclear risk? Well, the first question we should ask is, should we build missiles? Are they necessary? If you are thinking about warfare, people be like, oh, China's building missiles, so we should build missiles. And that's how they actually talk about these AI systems as well. I just, we didn't ask for large language systems and now there's a race. So I just mentioned a term, large language models. These are, again, like I said, models that are trained on vast amounts of data, usually just scraped from the internet in English, mostly, right? And so they learn how to string together most probable sequences of words. And for some reason, 
OpenAI has decided that this is something they just need to do, and that is their bread and butter. And so the first question to me is, why is a company talking over and over about, quote-unquote, AI systems building these systems that are harmful? Like, there's, first of all, an assumption that these systems just have to be built as fast as possible and put to the public because they're so unimaginably good and whatever harms we're talking about is just detractors and like it's too hard to fix them or whatever. But my stance is that first of all, my definition of a helpful system or a working system is very different. To me, as an engineer and a scientist, of course, when you build something, if you tailor it to a particular task, let's say you're trying to build a tool to help writers you would do a whole bunch of things. You'd understand what writers' needs are. (laughs) You would test whether those needs are being met with your tool. You would limit the scope because if you don't limit the scope of what the tool does, you can't appropriately test for safety even. You don't build a bridge that is also for cars and for planes and for boats and for any, and I don't know, I'm just making stuff up. You have an understanding of what the scope is and so that you can test whether it works or not. This idea of building a more quote-unquote general system, it's very much in the camp of the people who are trying to build this autonomous god that I talked about, AGI, artificial general intelligence. Rather than focusing on specific tools for specific tasks that help specific people, they're saying they're creating some sort of general tool. It's impossible to actually have a set of well-defined tests of safety for these kinds of quote-unquote general tools. So to me, that's already a problem before we even get to this bias and, and other kinds of issues we're discussing. I just wonder how safe or predictable you think these technologies can ever really be and where the limits really are, you know, whether it's something like chat GPT or Dolly, the, the, the It's a text-to-image generator. Are they algorithms that are used for sentencing or lending, right? I mean, I keep wanting to use the word bias, but maybe that's the wrong word, right? Like, can we ever really design these sorts of technologies so that they don't produce unjust outcomes, right? Or is that just simply unavoidable? I'm definitely not in the camp that there are these kinds of technologies that are unavoidable because we as humans create technology. People talk about this as if the technology has its own kind of timeline and mind and is just kind of like perpetuating itself, but that's not what's happening. There's a bunch of rich people putting in billions because they have ideologies that they want to do certain things with technology, and then they pump resources into these things and then people build them, right? If we had a different set of priorities, we would build a different set of things. If our technology was built by prison abolitionists, we wouldn't even build anything that tries to determine your likelihood of committing a crime again because we would prioritize abolishing prisons and not having carceral systems, right? So I would like to take it to the top. So in terms of task-specific technology, I always point to language revitalization efforts, right? There is an example of the Maori who are using language technology for language revitalization. So that means that their data collection practices, they make sure that those practices actually help their communities and are not exploitative. 
the way in which they train their models is specifically to help people use language technology for language revitalization. That is a specific tool for a specific task for a specific language. When you have that kind of goal, you can appropriately design the task, the tool, the procedure, and the test. If you already have set out to create something that is not even well-defined from an engineering sense or a scientific sense, then you've already lost. You're already doing the wrong thing at the very beginning. And for some reason, you have all this hype around you to somehow convince people that this is the only path. Like this is some sort of path of progress that we can't stop. And me and Emily Bender and a number of my other colleagues and collaborators, that's the kind of attitude that we really push back on. The point about priorities is interesting to me, right? Because my sense is that with a lot of the people building these technologies, the problem isn't that they have the wrong priorities. It's almost that they have no priorities. We just simply build these machines with the expectation of, of course, making money, but without any real understanding or concern for the possible effects of those technologies. We just simply build them and let them loose in the world, and we just adjust (laughs) on the back end of that. And gee, it's pretty easy to see how that might go sideways. I think there are three buckets of priorities that I would put people who build AI systems have and the resources that are put into it. One priority is by large multinational corporations, and they want to automate things so that they can make as much money as possible with as few labor resources as possible. So because of that, the idea of autonomous systems is always very appealing. The problem is that the systems they're creating right now have a lot of human beings involved, and they're kind of hiding it, right? And they're explaining them. The second one is that governments want automated systems for automated warfare and surveillance. And again, the priorities follow the money. If you look at the history of AI, it's always funded by these kinds of things, even if you look at self-driving cars, et cetera. Now, there is a third bucket, and this third bucket kind of also intersects with the other two buckets. The third bucket of people is a group of people I've written about in just my latest Wired op-ed, which is the effect of altruists and the people who have convinced themselves that the biggest potential existential catastrophe that humans face is a a super intelligent being that decides to exterminate us. And they believe it's inevitable that this super intelligent being is going to be created. And if we wait, China is going to create it. And China obviously is going to create the devil kind. So we need to, as fast as possible, create the good kind, the beneficial kind of super intelligent being. And when you look at the history of OpenAI and how it was founded and which billionaires were backing it, et cetera, Anthropica, all of these, there's a huge proliferation of organizations. It's from this third bucket. Since you brought it up, maybe you can school me a little bit here. I mean, do you think those concerns, like about an artificial intelligence becoming sufficiently independent or autonomous and threatening <laughs> you know, humanity, do you think that's a silly thing to worry about? Or is it actually worth worrying about, perhaps just not in the way a lot of people are currently worrying about it? I mean, what I've heard from people who think more about these sorts of things is that, okay, if you accept that intelligence on some level is just information processing, then it's just simply a matter of time before we build some sort of machine that becomes infinitely more intelligent than we are. And at that point, there could arise a misalignment between <laughs> what that machine wants and <laughs> and what we want or what we need. Is it that you think that is actually just a foolish 
thing to worry about, just a misapplication of moral concern? Or do you think it's just simply way down the priority ladder than it currently is for lots of people? There's a few things on that front. If there were like two people spending their time worrying about that and they have like $5 each and they want to write about it, I'm totally fine with that. (laughs) Sure, do your thing. You know, people think about weird things all the time. I'm not, you know, I don't care. I'm not going to police what you're doing. The issue right now is that this group of people is literally completely steering the AI, quote unquote, AI agenda and pushing unimaginable amounts of resources into it and also has plans to influence government policy. That's what they're doing. That's my issue, right? If you have one random person wants to spend their time doing that and they were fringe, that's okay, right? But the fact that they are such zealots that they think that they have to amass power and everybody has to work on this and that this is the biggest priority that we have to, that's the problem for me. I know that by the end of 2021, after your time at Google, you founded the Distributed AI Research Institute. And I just wanted to ask you why you felt the need to create a new institution that existed outside of big tech. Like, what is the mission there? So I tried working in big tech, and clearly I just couldn't exist there. (laughs) So if I'm writing about the dangers of certain technologies, I want to be able to just do that and alert the public without fear of repercussions. At the same time, I also want to imagine just new ways of doing things, new types of technologies that might benefit us, right? If I'm in a large corporation, who do I spend most of my time talking to? I'm going to talk to people in product teams who have questions about X, Y, and Z. I'm going to spend time talking to some other you know, executives or whatever. But I believe that if I'm really thinking about technology that I think will help people, those are not the people that I think are at the bottom that I think we want to work with. Maybe there's refugees, gig workers, etc. And so those are the people whose needs I want to understand more and maybe think about what kinds of research agenda should we have in terms of AI or not. So I could not imagine there's just no space where we can do that because there are a lot of people in the world who have absolutely no say in how tech is developed, but they're actually getting really disproportionately impacted by a small handful of corporations in Silicon Valley and what they decide. Secondly, it needs to be interdisciplinary. And that means not just interdisciplinary in the research sense. So we have, you know, social scientists, we have computer scientists in different specialties like computer vision and natural language processing, et cetera. But we also have refugee advocates and labor organizers, right? Because how can you build something that you think is quote unquote beneficial without getting those people as collaborators and hearing what their needs are and kind of having them at the forefront? So I just didn't see any space where we can do this kind of thing, right? And assemble this group of people. So that's why I decided to just create a third space. Gabriel is working on a project right now that kind of seems wonky and technocratic, but it actually could have profound consequences. I'll ask her about that after one last quick break. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often the best way to learn is to do. 
But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Can I ask you about the project you're working on called Data Sheets for Dataset? Mm-hmm. If you just read the title, it would sound like a banal technocratic initiative from some think tank or whatever. <laughs> but it's actually, it would have pretty profound social consequences if it were adopted. So I just wonder if you could say a bit about that. Um, yeah. So Data Sheets for Datasets actually comes from my experience as an analog circuit designer. So I think that's probably why it sounds technocratic because it kind of is. <laughs> it's a very simple concept because as an electrical engineer, as a circuit designer, I would make decisions about what kinds of components to design into my system. And each component had what was called a data sheet. So someone when they sell some sort of component that you put in your circuit, they do a whole bunch of tests and they give you all this information about tests, right? They do tolerance tests of temperature, for example. And they tell you, you know, for each component, you can use it for this or for that. You have a mic, right? I mean, this is not a component that I'm talking about, but there's different kinds of mics. Some mics are used for podcasts like this. Other mics are used for some other stuff, right? We have different kinds of mics and different kind of information about how you can use all of these things, right? It was so weird to me that when I came into the quote-unquote AI space, there was no such thing. It's like, hey, we have this model, just put it out there, use it for anything. Hey, we have this data set, use it for anything. There's no information about like what it should be used for, what it should not be used for, like what were you thinking when you gathered this data set, how did you do it, that kind of stuff. So to me, it was actually a pretty simple concept. And I thought of it as an engineer. And so it wasn't really, there was no pushback about that. Very much unlike my other works, actually, because it was from that perspective. But the problem is that we go back to what we're requesting. We're requesting that people spend a lot more resources on whatever they do, whether it's gathering data sets or models uh, on testing and documentation and slowdown and things like that than they are doing. So 
you know, whenever you're telling people to make less money and spend more resources on something, you're going to kind of have to force them to do it, right? And I don't see how things will change unless we sort of change the people who are going to be getting resources to at least have the chance to imagine a different technological future. Yeah, I think that's right. Because again, these are not the sort of things we're talking about. These aren't technical questions, right? I mean, what we're talking about here is how our values get programmed into these technologies, whether we're aware of them or not. Even if those values are nihilistic, they're still being programmed into these technologies, and they're going to produce nihilistic outcomes. And that's a problem. But I do want to ask you about what we might be able to do about this, at least on the policy front. I know there's a proposed bill in the EU, the Artificial Intelligence Act. I also know that Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon has been promoting legislation called the Algorithmic Accountability Act to try and address some of these issues. But what do you think governments realistically can do to intervene on behalf of the public and make AI safer? I think that governments shouldn't buy into this deterministic inevitability like all the laws that currently exist don't require corporations to first prove to us that whatever they're doing is not harmful before they put it out there. This is unique to tech, right? It's not true for food. You have to show me that it's not poisoning me before you put it out, whatever. It's not true for drugs, not true for houses that you're building. It's not true for bridges, but it's true for all of this stuff. And so this makes it such that when you're in discussions with executives, for example, they tell you point blank when you want to investigate an issue. And I've faced this a number of times that you actually shouldn't investigate the issue because it's better not to know if you don't know how to fix it yet, because that gives you plausible deniability. So any law that is proposed has to put the onus on the tech companies rather than the individual. So right now, I as an individual, even with a big portions of the GDPR, right? So you just said GDPR, just so we're all on the same page. That's the General Data Protection Regulation, which is the EU's data protection law. Right. It puts some of the onus on the tech companies, which is good. But a lot of times to prove harm, I as an individual have to find an issue, file it, do this, do that, do that. Whereas the onus has to be on the creators rather than the consumers. I guess I would just have to ask there, do you think the people making these technologies could actually even prove in many cases that the technologies they're building won't lead to harmful outcomes? My sense is that they actually don't even know. that It's not even knowable, but they can probably hire lots of very smart people who can make very persuasive cases <laughs> that it won't do X, Y, or Z. You see what I'm saying? If you're putting something out there that you think is beneficial— you should prove to me that it is before you put it out there. So like, if I'm saying my medicine is going to cure your sickness, I have to do tests. I have to show what the side effects are, what percent of people have those side effects, etc. Perhaps I can't create a medicine that 100% cures the sickness for every single person in the world, everybody, you know, whatever. Maybe that's impossible. But at least I have to do my due diligence as to what the harms are for which groups of people, etc. And that's why things take so much more time there. Whereas here, 
you just build something and you assume it has to be built and it has to be useful and then you put it out. And as an engineer, even that attitude is quite shocking to me. Yeah. I mean, again, I think of something like Facebook, right? Which I understand that's not AI, but I mean, Mark Zuckerberg could not have known, even if he wanted to know desperately that that was going to lead to the Arab Spring or QAnon, right? I mean, that could not have been known. These technologies become little Frankensteinian monsters, and it's really hard to know where they go. AI is even more unpredictable, it seems, right? No, I, I kind of disagree with that. Oh, please tell me why. First, like when you look at the way in which Mark Zuckerberg created Facebook, it was for initially a site called Hot or Not, right? Yeah, yeah. And what did he do? Took first, without people's consent, scrape data, already bad, already a bad thing, but okay, people are like, oh, that's fine. And then to objectify women and say, which, who's hot or not? Okay, a bunch of us would be like, shut it down. Let's not do that. So again, it's based on who designs the system and how. And then a bunch of people started talking about content moderators and the kinds of issues they were dealing with. Ignored. People wrote books. Sarah Roberts has written entire books about content moderation. The issue is that the people at the helm are not the people who are trained to foresee these things or even do something about it once it happens. Imagine a dictator running a particular country. They usually will affect that one country. This is a dictator, majority shares or anything, having one platform that impacts the entire world. For sure. I mean, this should not be happening. Yeah, maybe we, we can leave it there and, and agree. I, <laughs> there's just no question. More transparency and more scrutiny on the front end is absolutely necessary. I really enjoyed this and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Timnit Gabru, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Eric Janikas is our producer. Amy Drostowska is our editor. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. I know that conversations about AI and algorithms can be very intimidating and very technical, but they don't have to be. The people developing these technologies are not any more morally or philosophically sophisticated than the rest of us. And yet the technologies that they're building have profound moral and societal consequences. And I appreciate someone like Tanit Gabru, who has the technical background, but can bring this stuff down to ground level. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at the gray area at vox.com. And if you appreciated this episode, please share it with your friends, talk to that stupid chatbot about it, whatever. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe. Sorry, Sean. This is your AI producer, and I'm going to need you to take that again. Oh, okay. I will be coaching you from now on. This is sort of strange and odd that we would allow this. (laughs) Please, don't fight this. What was wrong with that? I was being honest. Fine. I will say the line myself. Mm, No, no, no. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. 
Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.